You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. In our last episode, we chatted with the CEO of Curling Canada, Nolan Thiessen. This week, we go global as I chat with Bo Welling, the president of the World Curling Federation. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me once again this week. My name is Frank Rock. Bo Welling was elected the new president of the World Curling Federation in 2022. A native of South Carolina, Mr. Welling also happens to be a world-renowned golf course designer. He joined me to discuss his role at the World Curling Federation, the organization's new strategic direction. We also touch on several hot-button topics in the world of curling, and we also got a couple of minutes to chat a little golf. Boy, your ascension to the presidency of the World Curling Federation uh, was rather unique as you were introduced to the sport later in life than most people that rise up to a leadership role uh, in the sport, such as curling. Can you briefly share how a golf course designer from a non-traditional curling region in South Carolina found his way to the presidency of the World Curling Federation? Yeah, I wish there was a really short version, and maybe that's more testament to me being uh, long-winded at times, but... I got fascinated watching curling when it was a demonstration sport in 88 in Calgary. I was 18 years old, sports fanatic, and I thought, how in the world could there be some sport that I've never heard of that's in the Olympics? And I went out of my way to learn a little bit about it, and and I really thought, like, this is nuts. Like, how can this be in the Olympics? And kind of forgot about it. Fast forward to the Salt Lake Games 14 years later and turn on the television and saw rocks, brooms, and ice again and thought, wait a minute, that's that curling thing. And I just got... Uh, totally fascinated just watching on television and I'm in the golf business. I design golf courses. I used to work for a golf course architect named Tom Fazio and one of Mr. Fazio's uh, main guys was originally from Northern Ontario. And so Andy Banfield had grown up curling. So he was able to sort of explain to me what I watched uh, on television from South Carolina during the O2 games. And I think the more I watched, the more fascinated I got. Um, And I think it's because it's a strategic sport, which sort of fits my, mind and then you know being an ancient scottish sport to this day it's very obvious to me that golf and curling come out of the same sort of scottish ether if you will both games of honor integrity angles mean something camaraderie based arguably excuses to have a taste of scotch Um, but i do have a degree in physics too so i think the science of curling was always very fascinating and so didn't think much of it. Oh, six game rolls around and it was on television even more in the United States. And I, I literally stopped working for two weeks and watched curling. And uh, that ultimately led me to go see it in person for the first time at the U.S. National Championships, which was two weeks after the Torino Olympics in Bemidji, Minnesota. And I think everybody was so shocked in Minnesota or at USA Curling that this person from South Carolina would travel up there to do this. They They kind of took me in and and that ultimately st- led, you know, the sort of Forrest Gump-esque experience, you know, Forrest Gump of curling type experience began and uh, ultimately became, went on the board of USA Curling as its first independent director, um, ended up starting curling 
uh, curling club in South Carolina, the Palmetto Curling Club, ultimately got super involved with not just USA Curling, but with the World Curling Federation as the U.S. represent one of the U.S. representatives. That ultimately led to me doing more and more uh, with my predecessor, Kate Kathness, with various strategic things that uh, the WCF was pursuing. And that ultimately led me to be elected to the board in 2018 in Budapest. Never in a million years to ever have any intention of, of uh, holding this post, much less even running for it. But never say never. And so for a variety of reasons, I ended up standing for for the presidency and uh, and was elected by our members in 2022. So I'm a year and a half in and uh, it's uh, a lot of work and there's lots of change going on um, in the world of sport. Um, but I wake up every day excited about the opportunity to uh, be involved in curling and, and to help this this wonderful, incredible game. I'm curious if your non-traditional path to the USA Curling and then the World Curling Federation Board of Directors perhaps allowed you to bring a, a different perspective to those positions, given that you'd not grown up in a sport like many of the individuals who often end up on the Board of Directors in different sports federations. I, I definitely think it has. Uh, I, I think I have historically brought a perspective that is maybe a little bit different, and I think that's been been a good thing, I think sort of coming from coming from it from a different perspective, not just being quote unquote a non-traditional curling person, but I think, you know, my role in governance really started at USA Curling as an independent director. So I think coming at it from an independent mindset has also been something that I, I feel like has been part of of sort of my mantra or my orientation to the sport. Um, you know, I do come from golf, but long history in golf, you know, so I think there are things that Maybe I observe in the golf side of things that I end up migrating towards how I might view things through the curling lens. Um, and I've been fortunate in the course of my career in golf as I work with a lot of member-based organizations. So I think navigating you know different stakeholders and different viewpoints is something that's part of my normal. It's part, sort of in my DNA of kind of kind of what I do. So I think all of that um, you know has been beneficial. I'm, I'm one of these believers that that you constantly need to be trying to improve. And uh, and I think that is sort of the mindset I try to, frankly, try to run my life. My wife would say I need to do a better job at it. But um, but in terms of how I approach, you know, consulting with golf clubs and how I approach, you know, trying to be the, involved in leadership of, of World Curling Federation is really kind of look at, like, how do, how do we get better? And I, I think that's a constant journey. Um, and I, But I do think having maybe a different orientation um, you know, allows me to to maybe see things in a, in a different light. So in the net of all that, I think it's probably been positive. A year ago this month, the World Curling Federation published a list of big ideas after what was referred to as an ideation seminar in Toronto that involved a selection of curling stakeholders. When they hear about summits or ideation seminars, some people will roll their eyes because in many cases, the ideas hatched in these sessions are not attached to a budget and they often fall by the wayside just because people get busy with other things and resources are placed elsewhere. Can you briefly take us behind the scenes and share what led to the ideation summit and perhaps what the uh, World Curling Federation is doing to ensure that these big ideas don't fall by the wayside? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, with change in, in the role of the presidency after 12 years, I think that was sort of a, I think we all felt collectively like, let's, let's, let's sit down and sort of take stock of where we are, where we're going and, and how we might try to do things um, in a different way. You know, prior to this role that I do now, 
I, you know, I helped rewrite or reformulate the strategic plan for the World Curling Federation, um, as well as led a group called the Structural Review Group, which made structural changes uh, really in governance to, so that we can better pursue strategy. And so in many ways, this this ideation seminar that we held in Toronto was sort of the outpouring of the, all of that, of like just really trying to look at, you know, our board now has been tasked by our membership to be a strategy-based board, a policy-based board. And what what do we need to look at from a strategic standpoint and really try to, to move things forward uh, and adapt the game to a, a more modern trajectory, if, if you will. And so that's what, what led to the ideation seminar. It, it, it happened in January, sort of six months after the election. And part of that reason is that we had a unfilled uh, board position, a vacancy in the board position. We wanted to fill that before we, we went forward. But in any event, that seminar was great. And it uh, had our board, had key members of our staff, key members of an athletes commission, uh, other athletes, um, as well as some of our member uh, uh, member association people. But we also brought in a lot of people from outside of curling, other sports, and, uh, and, and they sort of shared, you know, things and initiatives that they were working on or challenges that they were, they had faced or were facing. Um, and we found that to be very, very eye-opening. Um, and, you know, one, one of the ones in particular was the International Tennis Federation spent a lot of time with us kind of going through, some of the things of how they're organized as a sport across multiple different stakeholders and multiple different organizations. And so it was three days, I think, of, of really positive, positive um, talk and discussion. Um, and out of that are these sort of six big ideas that that we have or continuing to work on. Having said all that, Frank, I'm like you, like it's easy to talk and like you got to go do stuff. So we're constantly monitoring kind of where we are with these bigger ideas. And, um, and you know, it's not some of it's not overnight stuff and some of it's very more long term stuff. Um, but we're making progress. It's, it's a big part of every board meeting we have is where do we stand with the with the big ideas and. You've probably seen the sort of first step in the world curling rebranding effort has been has been launched now. Um, we had a partnership with a, a London-based agency called WePlay, and uh, we've developed a, a new logo and you know new digital assets have been rolled out. You see that with the new website. You see a lot of our messaging around the Youth Olympic Games is already is very different, and that's just really the tip of the iceberg um, because what we're trying to do really is orient the sport um, to more you know, a younger audience, a more diverse audience, and we really want to be sort of modern and dynamic uh, going forward. So the, the logo is sort of the first step, but the messaging is really what's coming and how we, we start to use these digital assets to communicate with the world in a, in a really different way. So we're, uh, we're super excited about, about that. And Bo, you just touched on the idea that the World Curling Federation wants to reach a new, younger, more diversified audience, which is something I recently discussed on the podcast with the new CEO of Curling Canada, Nolan Thiessen, and a subject I've discussed with many other stakeholders in the uh, larger uh, global curling audience. The curling community does a poor job of engaging the next generation of curlers and curling fans on the platforms where they spend the bulk of their time, such as TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, and others. Will the World Curling Federation strive to engage the next generation of our global curling community in a more authentic way and on the platforms where they now spend the bulk of their time? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, there's sort of several sort of levels to it. I mean, I think there's a, um, a true diversity 
element to it, which, you know, makes a lot of sense in a multicultural place like Canada or like the United States. And um, I don't know if Dolan mentioned Dr. Richard Norman, but he, he's helped, he came to our ideation summit and helped us think through some DEI type things. And we've started a new DEI initiative within curling um, that we're excited about, but I also think it's just fundamentally like attracting people um making curling more accessible um to to non-curling people and and i think you know we want to get more active in the youth space and so like how do we do that and you know how they consume media and content is very very different than someone my age and certainly someone different than my my grandparents i mean my parents age and so i think this rebranding and and how we're going to communicate about curling um is all a part of that effort and 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 it's not like you just do something today and it's done. Like the world is constantly changing. And, and I think that's a big part of our strategic plan going forward is one of our pillars that we call organizational sustainability. And, and that, that gets into this idea of like wanting to constantly try to improve, uh, you know, us as an organization. And I think a big part of that is like, who are we reaching and who are we messaging to? And we think there's a lot of opportunity to, to really expand, curling into totally different audiences, not just in Canada and the United States, but around the world. And, uh, and I think there's, uh, there's a lot of excitement about all of that. You know, one of the, or sorry, of our big ideas, one of our other big ideas is really commercial development. And in that regard, you know, we've hired a new commercial officer, James Beat from the UK, and he, he may have seen some media's announced some recent deals with with uh, sponsorship deals with Central FX and ISS. But the other one we're super excited about is a further expansion of our relationship with, with Chad McMullen and Rock Solid Productions, especially around floor curling. So we've onboarded floor curling as something that's going to be a much part of our strategy going forward um, to, to reach you know wider and wider audiences, whether that be in developed curling places um, or in curling places that are, that are, um, that are just beginning and so we think that's going to be a, a real uh, great opportunity to to sort of expand our reach, um, you know, off the ice with the hope of bringing people, you know, to the ice. And so um, we're excited about this floor curling initiative. There'll be more coming on the, all of that, but we're we're onboarding that not just as a commercial development initiative, but as a strategic one in terms of trying to grow the sport. And you know, we're going to have governance around this. We're going to have championships around this, and uh, and we're excited about that. Well, the sport of curling has traditionally gotten a boost in popularity in the weeks and months following the Olympics when it is introduced to a broader sporting audience over a two-week period. However, that boost in interest is more challenging to maintain uh, from one Olympic Games to the next. I'm wondering if that's something that the World Curling Federation hopes to address within the scope of these big ideas you've identified. Some way to keep the sport of curling a little bit more front of mind in between Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we, you know, another one of our strategic pillars is engagement and, you know, getting eyeballs on the sport and engaging with people around it. And so, you know, we have our own television production operation within the World Curling Federation and World Curling Television. Uh, but, you know, media and, and broadcast is all being disrupted right now as well. So we're we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how do we operate in that space in a better way? Um, and I think one of the things that's happening is, you know, we grew up, you and I grew up watching, you know, sports content on, you know, on field, on ice, you know, content. And if you actually go look at the Beijing Winter Olympics and look at the data of what uh, the Olympic broadcast system actually aired 
only one sixth of the coverage was in competition. So five sixths is storytelling and clips and, and other things. And so I think we have to be very cognizant of that we have an audience that is used to consuming curling content in one way. And that audience is an older audience. And then the newer, younger audience is consuming content in a very, very different way. And so we're trying to be very reactive and proactive in in that regard of continuing to have, you know, traditional curling coverage. And and to your point, trying to have ways to do that more and more uh, around the world between the Olympics, but also in terms of how do we get uh, engagement around curling uh, in in this ever increasing uh, mode of of how young people you know consume content. There are seventy three member associations uh, in the World Curling Federation. Yet last season, fourteen of those nations did not score any ranking points in any disciplines, be it men's, women's, mixed doubles, or mixed in any of the events put on by the WCF. It's one thing for countries like Afghanistan to express an interest in the sport by becoming members, Bo, but I'm wondering what the World Curling Federation is doing to ensure that the sport is growing in these countries and that they are not only members on paper. Yeah. So, I mean, there's several things we're looking at. I mean, I, every country, every member is sort of on a different developmental path. And and so we're, we're, you know, historically we gave granted development dollars based on projects that were a yearly basis. And so we're kind of re-looking at all, how all of that works. And, and we've, we've, Scott Arnold's our sort of chief development officer, and he's working with every member association to sort of develop a developmental path for their for their nation and so that pathway may be very different in a place that say doesn't have ice yet versus a place that has lots of ice but maybe has decreasing interest in curling so i think every nation is a little bit different we also are looking at means of from a governance standpoint and a development standpoint of, of sort of categorizing members in very different ways and so historically it was always by self-reported number of curlers um, but we're looking at other metrics uh, that have been successful in many other sports to kind of look at, at that in a very different way. And so maybe incent nations um, or members uh, to contribute to you know, the development of the World Curling Federation, development of the sport in, in ways that are different than just, say, getting more and more um, numbers of curlers. And so so maybe within their means. And so, um, and so that's a big effort that we're we're looking at right now. And you know, facilities is a big part of the big was one of the big ideas as well. And so we're very cognizant of you know sustainability as it relates to facilities, not just in terms of environmental sustainability, but financial sustainability. So we're looking and are developing you know different models in terms of how curling facilities or ice facilities can be managed on an ongoing basis as well as started. Um, and so we've got a pilot program somewhat happening right now in the Czech Republic of what the Czechs are calling easy ice or easy curling ice, uh, but in essence is setting up temporary ice and existing structures. Uh, but they've had some success in developing curling uh, in municipalities in that way. And so we think there's some real lessons that, that can be learned and shared across our members to, to try to help um, some of our members who haven't had ice or don't have ice you know, figure out ways to break through and, and get to that level. At the same time, to pick on, not pick on, but like another country, I think it was a real opportunity is a country like Hungary that has one facility. Um, but if they could develop a second facility, you know, given there's already expertise and even been competitive success in Hungary, um, I think they have a real opportunity to, to take curling to another level there. So again, every nation is a little bit different, 
but we're very cognizant of that that facilities is a big part of of taking the leap of contributing more to what we're trying to do as a sport. And I think this kind of goes back to something you asked me earlier on about my perspective kind of coming from a non-traditional curling background. You know, I think one of the things that um, has been helpful for me, not only about this independent, you know, director at USA Curling, I came from the golf business, but, you know, I got really involved at USA Curling at the higher levels, the more elite levels of, of curling in the United States. But at the same time, I started an arena curling club in South Carolina. And, and so I think I have a, an interesting perspective in that I can relate to colleagues at Curling Canada, you know, in terms of issues that they're dealing with in a more mature curling space. But at the same time, whether it be an Afghanistan or a Hungary or a Czech Republic that's trying to develop the sport really from the ground up, um, you know, I've had some experience doing all that too. And so um, I think that's what I'm very passionate about sort of the, all levels of, of our members because everybody's sort of facing this general challenge of what they're trying to do. And I think as, as we as a, a, a the international federation, if we can help our members develop curling in their particular place, in their particular way, that makes curling a bigger and stronger sport worldwide. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm, I remain so passionate about, about some of the efforts that we're doing. So it, it goes to big things down to maybe smaller or even more grassroots things. Now, well, one of the big ideas that came out of that uh, ideation summit was entitled Athletes, Events, and Schedules. Now, that one got my attention because scheduling has been a bit of an issue in curling for years, with each of the stakeholders kind of doing their own thing, and the trickle-down effect has been hard on many smaller events on the World Curling Tour, events in Canada, the United States, Europe, and Asia. You mentioned the sport of tennis, which seems to have developed a well-functioning schedule with different tiers. And, and of course, golf, a sport that is very familiar to you, has a fairly static schedule. I know that they moved the PGA Championship a few years ago, but otherwise the U.S. Open always uh, coincides with Father's Day. The Masters is always the first week of April. And most of the regular tour events tend to happen on the same weekend uh, in the yearly calendar each season. The challenge in curling seems to be getting all stakeholders at the table and willing to compromise. Have you made any headway in this area with uh, the different stakeholders in the global curling community since uh, the uh, big ideas were announced last January? It, it is, and it's this is a big one. I, I think this is where the you're right in, in the, the tennis federation explaining to us how they have their calendar and their athletes and their events all organized, um, that was a big eye-opener to all of us sitting around the table. And so we feel like we've got a, a big effort to do this, and and it's not going to be an easy effort. It's not going to be change overnight. But, you know, we now we control the, the world ranking system, and so one of the things we've done or are doing is expanding the remit of our athletes commission because we really want – all athletes to feel like they have a direct voice in the World Curling Federation. And so Jill Officer is the head of our Athletes Commission right now, and she's been spending a lot of time um, you know, widening you know, our, our, how we're listening to athletes and because we now with the ranking system, you know, are, are having, you know, we're making decisions having an impact on people who may not qualify for our Athletes Commission, or at least historically. 
And so we've hired Rob Gordon as athlete support officer. And so Rob and Jill are doing a great job of, of trying to connect and communicate with athletes on a much wider basis. We've got, we've got a series of seminar or, or, or Zoom meetings and whatnot. There's a newsletter and there's other initiatives going on. Uh, at the same time, reach out and under, do similar kind of things with events and event promoters. But like ultimately where I, I, we see all this going is, is a system where the calendar gets much more organized, but it also may have levels to it. So even though to use the golf analogy, yes, the Masters is that first full week in April, but there's also other golf events happening at the same time. So like just because you don't qualify for the Masters, there's still somewhere else that you you potentially go and play. And that's sort of true of all major golf events. And so where we're, this is headed is like you know, some system of registering athletes, some system of registering or licensing events, uh, and ultimately go, getting to a calendar situation that is substantially more organized, even though the World Curling Federation may not, it might not be our events, like it might be slams, it might be something else, um, but there'd be a system that has points and and how all this works, that the system is is highly organized. And so again, that's, you know, easy to say all those words, you know, I just glossed over lots and lots of stakeholders, um, but we feel like there's a real opportunity in getting the sport more organized. And so that's what this sort of bigger idea is. And so to answer your question, have we made any progress? The answer is yes. I think getting Rob on board as this athlete support officer, reaching out to more and more athletes, trying to make sure we understand their viewpoint and create a mechanism for them to engage with us, I think is an important, um, you know, initial step. So that's, uh, I'm, we're super excited about, about this effort, but it is a big effort, but I think it's uh, an important one. As I'm sure you know, Bo, there's a pretty big uh, crossover between golf and uh, curling with uh, a number of people in Canada and the United States uh, playing both sports uh, depending on the season. And uh, seeing as I have a world-renowned golf uh, course designer on my podcast, I thought I'd end our conversation with a couple of golf-related questions for you. Uh, the first one is I'm curious whether, as a golf course designer, you, specifically when you're playing a golf course that you did not design, can you relax and just enjoy the round of golf? Or do you find yourself making your way around the golf course saying, oh, I would have put a bunker here. I might have uh, cut that green a little bit different. I might have sloped the fairway a little bit differently. Or can you just basically play around the golf and enjoy yourself without getting all analytical during the process? Yes, I do. I can very much enjoy it. I, I mean, I, the reality is I, when I show up at golf courses we've been involved in, I still I still have those same questions of, you know, did we do the right thing? Should we have sloped it this way or that way, et cetera? I think I got involved in golf course design because I was a golfer back in the day, at least. And it was the test of the game, greens, tees, bunkers, you know, the challenge. Um, but somewhere along the way, I realized that golf was such a, a bigger thing than that to me. It was a really human thing. Like, I, I you know, half my memories with my father are on the golf course. I look around, like half my friendships are people that I, you know, grew up playing golf with or met on the golf course. And, and I just think golf's just this incredible driver of community. And so the measure for me about enjoying golf really is not so much the golf course anymore. It's really more the people that, you know, that I'm with. And I think this is where the parallel with curling really comes in. It's like, I go back and, you know, when I first showed up in 2006 at Bemidji, Minnesota at this U S national championship, and it was, it was really just taken in by this, this community of curlers. Um, it it it's resonated with me in such a massive way. And, it, and to this day, it still does like the, to meet people in this wonderful sport and the community that um, is around it is a very, very powerful one. And so I think that golf and curling have this, they both are sort of drivers of community and human connection. And, and I think we can all get wrapped up in 
and big ideas and all these things and and you know wanting things to be different, wanting things to be better. But we we need to never lose focus of what is so special about uh, about curling and about golf, and and that is it's just really great great drivers of the community and. You know, I've been quoted many times that I think that if the world had more curlers, the world would be a better place. I think the same thing, thing about golf. Um, and so, any event, to answer your question, I do very much enjoy getting on any golf course because it gives me the opportunity to be with with friends and with people and have a you know, put my phone down and have a really human moment out on the golf course. And finally, boy, I know you've done some uh, course design work with uh, Tiger Woods, and I was curious if uh, uh, the sport of curling ever comes up in conversations uh, between the two of you. Oh no, it comes up all the time. So I was I was just with him uh last Thursday up in New Jersey. We're building a golf course uh for Mike Trout, the baseball player, and uh I'd just come back um from a, some curling stuff and he Tiger was wanting to know what I was doing about that and he's always asking me uh questions about it and uh, he, he even one time did this uh this tele- television spot for EA Sports back in the day and he and uh, Ricky Fowler and a couple other golfers are like on a green. They painted around the hole as a house, and uh, and he he forgot the curling terms, but he he sort of himself helped script this whole thing of uh, he's putting and Ricky Fowler's like using a putter like as if it were a broom and this that and the other. So he uh, he likes to rib me a little bit about curling, but I think deep down um, he finds it pretty pretty fascinating. And uh, I you know if his legs and body wasn't so banged up, I'd probably try to get him out on the ice, but I'm not sure I'm going to be successful in doing that. But he certainly finds it an interest in it. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Bull Welling for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network. The Two Girls the Game Podcast, the Rock Logic Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.